0: You need to make sure that you're looking at sufficient cash, cash flow to be able to do what you're doing. I think one of the biggest mistakes startups make is they don't recognize the amount of cash it will take to get a business off the ground. It usually takes twice as much as you think and twice as long. So mm-hmm. it's really important to be mindful of that.
1: Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, the serial entrepreneur that's grown several startups into seven and eight-figure businesses, as well as the CEO and founder of Miller IP Law, where we help startups with patents, trademarks, and everything business-related. And if you ever need help with yours, just go to strategymeeting.com. We're always here to help. Now today we've got another great guest on the podcast. They're all great guests, and uh, this is certainly, or uh, she is certainly no exception. Dr. Uh, Christy Kane, and uh, just as a quick introduction to her, so she went uh, was going through um, her. Uh, college degree and started out I think in pre-law and then moved over to psychology and kind of as she was then going through the doctorate program decided uh, why wait let's open up a clinic and so was doing a clinic and was uh, helping uh, troubled youth uh, and uh, troubled youth with I think you Bought it? And and anyway, she'll fill it in. But I think bought and owned a troubled youth program, kind of started that and kept it growing. And then also is running an online platform to help with mental health issues as well. So with that much is a very quick introduction, and hopefully I didn't slaughter it too much. Welcome on the podcast.
0: Thank you. Excited to be here.
1: So I gave kind of that brief introduction, kind of that high-level overview, but take us back in time a bit to when you first started out in college and kind of how that journey kicked off for you.
0: So yeah, I started in pre-law and intended to be an attorney and then switched over to psychology. And within my psychology field,
1: I I know you barely start. So I want to try and interrupt too much. But you know, so you started out as pre-law wanted to be an attorney. What made you decide to switch over to psychology or to kind of switch or switch tracks?
0: Well, at that point, it was pragmatic. In the state of Utah, where I lived, there wasn't any part-time law schools, and I ended up being married and wanted to start my family, and so it was either go to psychology part-time or try to figure out how to go to law school full-time while having a family, so it was just easier to go to psychology, and I had minored in psychology, so I already had an interest in the field.
1: So okay. That's so that's really
0: how that switch came about. So
1: you're saying one is, hey, program doesn't offer for the situation where I'm at, and I could either try and adjust it or I'll go into this other thing that has also interested me and it presents a good opportunity. And so you go, so now you get or you switch from law and i'd assume that the the pre-law versus psychology is a bit of a different uh mindset i don't know i
0: think all attorneys need to be psychologists or attorneys (laughs) need to have psychologists you know they need to go see one i'm just kidding but anyways yeah it was you know it's still about dealing with humans and Mm. human behaviors and you know everything an attorney will do will deal with individuals whether it's a constitutional law case or whether it's a you know, business law or whether it's domestic law, I mean, it deals with humans and behaviors and choices, right?
1: Mm, No, absolutely. absolutely There's
0: an interesting psychology play there.
1: (laughs) No, and I, I tend to agree in the sense that, you know, there's a lot of overlay with I think that de- understanding people's psychology has overlays and a lot of things, everything from sales and marketing and understanding how people make purchases to the law and how they de- make their decision making to, you know, almost across a lot of dis- different industries. And I think there's, you know, when you're dealing with individuals and you're having to work with that, there's a lot of value into understanding the psychology that goes behind that. So now you make that, you know, that switch, you say, okay, I'm going to go into psychology. You do it, you know, part-time as you're doing your family and that. And then how did you kind of get into, is, as we mentioned during your doctor program, you started getting into the business side of it.
0: You know, I've always owned businesses prior, even going into my psychology field, I ran and operated a mortgage company. And so when I was in the middle of my master's, um, you know, they started explaining what they paid interns, which was zero to maybe a couple dollars because you were anticipated to pay your dues. And I was like, yeah, I'm not going to do this. I'm not Mm. going to work for nothing. And so I figured out I could open up my own clinic and bring in a clinical director and have a supervisor and be paid a wage. And so I did something very different. As a matter of fact, even the director of the university was like, you know, we've never had a student graduate and do that. And I was like, well, you know what? I'd rather make money and get my 4,000 hours than work for free. So it worked really well. Mm. So that's-
1: so how, so I agree, you, know, you typically don't hear why you're doing your graduate degree, you're going to work for someone else to your point, you're going to pay your dues. So how did you find that opportunity of, hey, I'm going to actually go and make money, I'm going to run something as opposed to just pay my dues type of thing. How did you get that idea? And then how did you actually implement it?
0: Well, going through my master's program, you have to do internships, 900 hours at different facilities. Mm. And that kind of gave me a good idea to figure out how outpatient services run. And know that I could do that, you know. And there's so much now available in electronic billing and scheduling, and you know, hiring an admin and hiring other clinicians. And so it mm. just worked, you know. I paid attention in my residential in my residency, not just to the uh, taking the notes and learning about you know diagnoses, but I watched how they ran the businesses and went, I could do this as well, you know. Mm. So I think anybody who's wanting to, you know, start or become an entrepreneur needs to learn from those who are already doing what they want to do, which is what I did.
1: So now, but then I think that's very insightful. Now, how did you actually find the business that you were able to start or going to start? And then did you, I think we talked about, but I could be completely wrong that you bought it or you acquired it, or you otherwise purchased into it, or kind of how did you get into that part of saying that's where I'm going to start?
0: Well, I started in outpatient therapy and bought a commercial building hired clinicians and staff to work for me. Then four years into that, because I had done some of my residency in in a residential treatment centers for kids, I recognized that I didn't like what they were currently offering. And so I started to look at what nobody was offering so that I could offer a different residential type treatment modality. I also went to a different state than the state I was in because the state I live in is the capital for residential treatment centers. So I went to a state that had need, and then I opened up three residential centers that were different than anybody else was doing. One was a 500 head cattle ranch, and two mm. were equine therapeutic intervention programs. And I took the tough kids at JJS contracts and the DHS, so I had guaranteed population.
1: Mm. And so that's now, how I got that. One question I, I, I had as you kind of talked through that, which was. You know, so you were still going through your doctorate program hadn't, uh, you know, hadn't uh, defended your, you know, defended your thesis or anything of that. And yet, so know. when you're hiring, you know, you get the building, you hire these people on, was there any sort of tension or hey, these people, you know, because they were, I assume, and maybe you can correct me that they had their doctorates, they'd already paid their dues. And so they were coming to work on for someone that hadn't gone through all that. Was there any sort of tension or pushback? Or were they happy to be there? Kind of how did you navigate that?
0: So I'd already defended my thesis. I didn't have, I just, on my master's level, I just haven't done my 4,000 hours. And no one seemed to have an issue as long as they knew that I was paying the paycheck. You know, people, (laughs) clinicians go to work for business people who don't even have a field in psychology, but Mm. they own, you know, they own a mental health clinic. And so I really didn't get any pushback on that. As a matter of fact, we worked as a team and they offered insight, you know, if I had questions on clients that I was working with. So it was very positive.
1: Mm. No, and that's interesting, you know, because, you know, in my mind, and in what your explanation makes a whole lot more sense, you know, the legal field, you basically you go and you're a law student for a period of time. And then you graduate, you part, pass the bar, and then you, you know, you go either start your own firm or you work for a law firm. So a bit of a different circumstance, if you're a law student starting your own law firm, and hiring lawyers. You know it would be an interesting dynamic, but I think to your point, hey, if the paychecks are there and the the business is there, what does it matter who's running it type of a thing. Right. So now so you do that, and you, and you then you you mentioned and jumping back to where you're at, you you start doing the troubled youth programs and getting into that. Was that kind of an extension of what you guys were doing, or how did you decide, hey, we want to fold that in with what we're doing?
0: It was a complete shift actually, because my outpatient clinic was in Utah. My residential mm-hmm. treatment centers are in the were in the state of Nevada. And so um, and then after I opened up the residentials, I closed the outpatient because the residential had more lucrative income and required more of my time. And I really enjoyed working with the adolescent population. As a matter of fact, had I not been put out of business by that state, making some poor decisions in getting money that was uh, embezzled, I would probably still be running that. But we ran that for six years very successfully. And then I shifted over to. Now we run, because we live in the electronic world, we run a mental health stabilization platform that's on electronic devices for corporations, schools, healthcare entities, and first responders.
1: Hmm. So I've
0: even shifted. So I've gone through three major areas of mental health, outpatient, residential, and now we do daily empowerment modules in an electronic
1: platform. So now, so now that's what I was going to just get to. So you shifted yet again. So youth programs, and now you're having to run that dynamic. And then how did you get into not only that, but kind of now running the online program and the online model for mental health and, and diving into that as well?
0: Well, it's an interesting time in our society. And I think mental health is going to be the new buzzword coming out of 2020 with the impact of COVID, right? And we've seen increasing mental health rate issues at younger and younger ages and broader populations. And so we have to start looking at what can address this crisis in new innovative ways, because individual therapy one-on-one is never going to cover the blanket of what's needed in our society. And so Mm -hmm. we as a corporation started looking at that. We were actually approached by um, some schools. We were approached by some corporations to help in their mental health side. So we actually created a platform to meet their needs because they approached us with their problems.
1: Okay. So, so now was it kind of diving into that? Was it, you know, you say into live in interesting times and, you know, certainly COVID has a large impact on mental health. Was it kind of in tandem with COVID or was it, you know, well, you're already looking at it and and anticipating this or cause it was that a pivot that was caused by COVID or just happened to, or, or line up with that?
0: We were already actively seeking to stabilize because the mental health statistics were off the charts before COVID hit. Mm. You look at 2017 statistics with, you know, 25% of the adult population dealing with mental health issues and that's 2017. And now you're coming out of 2020 with almost a 50% ratio coming into play. So we were Mm. already in that aspect and then um, it just worked perfect because we pivoted right into it. And so even now, Hmm. um we're we're seeing more and more connections being able to you know work on mental health right
1: now no and i think that you know that it, it interesting how things have shifted because I, I agree mental health is always a you know major issue that uh, people have to deal with regardless and it's you know it seems to be one where it's on the rise as opposed to on the, you know the downslope was where's where we'd like it to be and then COVID comes along and only further exacerbates or, or creates that so now more than ever so now as you've kind of made that so are you running and i didn't catch it are you running all three still at the same time with the original clinic and the troubled youth and also the online mental health or kind of where's your focus and kind of where are you where are you building towards in the future
0: our main focus right now is our mental health empowerment stabilization platform and so mm-hmm. you know and you'll find this interesting especially coming from the legal perspective um, OSHA has mandated for years and years for corporations to have to do different policies and procedures for, you know, physical health and making sure that everybody's protected and nobody's in harm's way. Mm. But OSHA has a huge side that's mental health that most of corporations and entities have kind of just set aside. But you have a bunch of attorneys right now beginning to draft um, legal actions and threatening to um, move forward in lawsuits against corporations who aren't incorporating mental health stabilization. Hmm. And so we're staying in that whole mental health empowerment platform. We're not doing the we do the outpatient still because our therapists do telehealth within that electronic platform. We don't do the residential centers anymore, but we do work on that daily empowerment in our in our lines of corporations, first responders, education, and healthcare.
1: Hmm. And so now with with that focus, where do you kind of see things going in the next six to 12 months, kind of both within your business and with the the field in general?
0: I think you're going to see much more of a microscope on how do we stabilize the mental health of individuals. You know, it's ironic within our climate of COVID, which is decreased socialization. And yet we know neurologically, the human brain needs human connection. And Mm. then you look at also the reality, there's a lot of study coming out of Um, UC Davis about the fact that the human brain is designed to grasp negativity and that Hmm. negativity creates horrific divide and terrible mental health. And you look at the, the pivots of our society in the last year that I Hmm. think you are going to see a lot more talks about how do we stabilize and empower positive mental health and go back to some of those basic neurological needs that humans have to have.
1: Hmm. And one question, you know, kind of maybe just as an aside, but a question that came up, or in my mind as you're talking through that, is so you have... Covid, which is also just lockdowns, you have people working from home, and it's interesting because on the one hand you have it seems to me, and I could be wrong, I'm certainly not an expert in the field, but, you know, as people are isolated working from home, they they don't have that human interactions, and it seems like generally people are wired to have or want or, or li- enjoy human interactions, the desire to you know be with other people, to talk through, and to have that or support group, and so you remove that, and yet you'll also be having a a shift within the marketplace for people more and more wanting to work from home. So how do you balance that? On the one hand, people are saying, Hey, I love working from home because I don't have to commute. I don't have to, you know, do those hours. And on the other hand, you know, it seems like it's having a bit of a negative impact where people aren't getting out and socializing as much anymore.
0: You know, it's an interesting statistical analysis. We definitely have seen all mental health rates increasing across the board due to the isolation Hmm. because humans are meant to connect. We also took away people's uh, coping skills. Like a lot of people dealt with stress by going to the bar after work or going to the gym or lots of different aspects, right? But we just eliminated Mm -hmm. everything that helps us cope as humans. But yeah, Mm -hmm. neurologically, the brain is wired for human connection. Oxytocin and serotonin are released when we spend time face to face. So we have to have that. And as far as productivity, that's an interesting analysis because you're right. A lot of people are arguing, hey, I love working from home. But then you also have to look at the statistical analysis of productivity by corporations. And mm-hmm. you also see, especially in the younger generation, they're starting to say, I'm sick and tired of being in social media and on my phone and in Zoom meetings. I want human connection. Mm-hmm. So I think you're going to see both. Some people saying they want to work from home, but others saying, no, put me back in the office, put me back in school, put me back around my peers because I need that human connection. So it'll be an interesting balance.
1: No, and I think it's hard. I mean, like I said as an employer, it's, it there is a balance of how pro even though people say they love working from home how productive are they when they're either dealing with you know mental health depression or just you know anxiety or not being able to go out but you will also be able to concentrate and also through you know be be able to bounce ideas off of it having zoom fatigue and so it's a hard place to be i think all the way around as to how to balance all those issues and i don't you know it's not an easy uh, problem to solve so i think that you know Doing, all, or doing what you guys are doing to try and balance that and help other people out and, and doing that certainly has a need in the marketplace. Well, as, as we start to wrap up with the podcast, I always ask two questions and so we'll jump to those now. So the first question I always ask is along your journey, what was the worst business decision you ever made and what did you learn from it?
0: You know, the worst business decision I ever made as an early uh, business owner in the field of mental health was not to fire employees as quickly as I should have. Mm -hmm. And it ended up costing quite a bit in a few of my residential centers because I kept giving second chances and that was a big mistake. And so I've learned very clearly to set protocol and to set guidelines and what are termination policies and then to follow them because sometimes it's better to fire than to keep an employee who can potentially damage your business. And so that was one of my biggest mistakes was not to let someone go
1: soon enough no and i think that you know it, it is hard you know as much as you watch the the television shows or the movies and people are just quick to fire when you're in that circumstance it's not nearly as easy just to say oh you're gone you know because you know them you've probably developed a friendship with them you know that you know they're if they have a family or kids and they're supporting them and everything else and yet so you have all these you know Attachments to them, and yet, on the other hand, a lot of times, if you don't let them go and they're not performing or that's not doing well, it can either create a bit of a toxic environment or it can start to pull others down. Or in some, a lot of times, it even is they don't do well, perform well themselves, right? In the sense that it's not a good environment for them, it's not where they're going to thrive. And so, even to you know, as a courtesy to the employee themselves, letting them go can sometimes be the kinder thing. And yet, it's never the the fun side of being the employer. And yet, it's a lesson you have to learn in order to be to make the business. And successful, so I think that that's certainly well, an easy easy mistake to learn and or an easy mistake to make as anybody, and also one to learn from.
0: Yes, very much so.
1: So now we'll jump to the second question, which is: so if you're now talking to someone that's just getting into a startup or a small business, what would be the one piece of advice you'd give them?
0: You need to make sure that you're looking at sufficient cash cash flow to be able to do what you're doing. I think one of the biggest mistakes startups make is they don't recognize the amount of cash it will take to get a business off the ground it usually takes twice as much as you think and twice as long so mm-hmm. it's really important to be mindful of that
1: no and i think that you know it, it's it's everybody always seems to hear the exception like well I did a really good job planning and I'm you know I know my stuff and everybody else they say that and that's true for everybody else but for me I'll I'll keep it on you know time and on budget and yet it, I've yet to see anybody that holds true in the sense that there's always things that come up there's always the unknown there's always things that you didn't anticipate and so take or planning on things. Whatever you think is your best plan, doubling it or even sometimes tripling it, saying it's going to take longer, more amount of time and more amount of money than you anticipated, I think is a much better way to plan for a business than just simply trying to do it to down to the penny and down to the time and then not having that cushion built in. Yep, agreed So. So now as we wrap up and just as a reminder, everybody, we do with this episode as with several others. We've introduced uh, the bonus question. We'll talk a little bit about intellectual property. So h- hang on after we wrap up the normal episode to hear that answer and or that question and that answer. But as we wrap up otherwise for the, the, the normal podcast episode, if people want to find out more about the work you guys are doing, they're an employer and they want to implement your program or they're an individual and they want to check it out, they want to be a customer, they want to be an investor, they want to be your next best friend, any or all of the above what's the best way to reach out or find out more
0: so our website is 360 com. so 360 com or 360focusmentalhealth.com and they can right. find us through that
1: well i definitely encourage people to reach out find out more and uh and uh, check it out because i think there's certainly a need for it Well, for all of you listeners, again, there's a bonus question. But otherwise, um, if you have your own journey to tell, make sure to uh, go to inventiveguest.com and apply to be on the podcast. Also, if you're a listener, make sure to one, click subscribe so you get notifications as all the new awesome episodes come out. And two, leave us a review so new people can find out about the podcast as well. Last but not least, um, if you ever need help with patents, trademarks, or anything else with your business, feel free to reach out to us by going to strategymeeting.com. Now with that, so now we'll jump over to the the bonus portion of the podcast, which is now you get to turn the tables a little bit. I always get to pepper you with the questions and dive in and cut you off and and everything else. Now for on the flip side, what's your top intellectual property question?
0: You know, it's interesting because in soft sciences mm. like my field, intellectual property is a very blurred area because people seem to think that, you know, let's say you created all these statistics, put together a study, and you share it, anybody sitting in the audience is going to be the wannabe next presenter, will copy everything that you've done, and, and, you know, and run with it, so how do you recommend people in the soft sciences um, protect their intellectual property, because it's not so much a patent, like, you know, we didn't create a program or some type of new machinery, it's more all intellectual its research its its our evidence its what we talk about
1: yeah no that is a very a fair and valid question it's not an easy answer so, I mean, sometimes patents work and give me an example and then, you know, but I would say that's the exception. I, we're, we're, one of the clients is, is, a, is a doctor we work with that deals with a lot with ketamine and for other uses without getting into what he's doing, but he has figured out a new way to utilize ketamine and some of what he's doing in his practice, such that it lends itself more to patentability. But to your point, if you're doing a lot of research, you're not doing a product, you're not doing a software, you're not doing hardware, you're just really doing research and then implementing it. Patents generally don't apply. Or they're, they're difficult unless you fit into the exception. The you know the one that you can, but again, it's a bit difficult. Is trademark sometimes if you built a brand. So let's say whether it's you know. Tony or, or uh, was Tony Rogers uh, the big uh, speaker that's what I was gonna say Rogers didn't sound right Robinson um, <laughs> yeah. but, you know he's a motivational speaker and he tells everybody he's built a huge brand and so in and of itself that brand has a lot of value because people read his books they go to his seminars and even if you're a smaller brand and you're saying hey we built a good clinic it has a good reputation we want to when people think of that that goes more into the reputation and the branding. You can start to protect that. If you get into lecture series or book series or, or, or a presenter on a period of time, you can brand it. But that's, again, almost a bit of an exception in the sense that unless you're building a big brand, if you're just doing the research, or doing the development, and then you're implementing it, you publish some papers, you may be a presenter to, but it's not, you're building a brand around it, then it may not feel, fit in the trademark. The other one you can do is a bit more on copyrights. And copyrights are more for books or for that actual information. And so if you're saying, hey, we've wrote a great book. It has a lot of research details and people are starting to copy that or they're knocking it off or otherwise taking that actual information, then you can protect that with copyright. So that way it protects against people just blatantly copying or using your information without your permission when you've done all that research and that development. Now, the difficulty with copyrights is that if they take the foundational information, but then they put it in their own format, their own way of say, speaking about it, then there, there isn't a good way to protect it in the sense of just the information, the foundation for the you know research and the clinicals. If it's published and people then use that as a foundation, they do their own thing with it, then you probably aren't going to be able to capture that other than if you know, you can write a book, you can write those papers that are the seminal papers that everybody refer to. You can use, utilize the copyright there in order to say, hey, if you're going to quote our stuff, if you're going to copy it, you're going to use it, then you have to get it, give us a license. But there is, it is a hard question. So those are some of the ways you go about protecting it. Otherwise, you just, otherwise, you're just going to have to say, hey, we're going to out-research. We're going to have a better brand, better reputation. We're going to be the ones that are at the forefront that people just buy our reputation alone, you know, kind of the medical doctors that everybody knows that, hey, they're the authority. They know what they're talking about. They know what they're doing. Sometimes it's just having to compete in the marketplace if you don't fit into any of those categories.
0: That makes sense. Yep. It, it, it is an interesting area, especially when you're a soft science, not a hard science.
1: Yeah, and but I mean, even you know you think about it. If I were going to some other the service industries, it kind of has some of those parallels. Let's say you're the world's best plumber and you know one is a good plumber well unless you you can brand you know if you can create a brand people know it but otherwise how do you you can do a really good job people know that you can you know be able to do it more quickly do it more effectively and yet how do you do that and so I think even whether it's any service and plumber it can be service industries lawn mowing it can be you know doing a dry cleaning it can be doctors it can be medical it can be a lot of different areas and just saying hey I just got to build that reputation such that when people refer to it you know, there are avenues that I can protect some aspects of it, but for others, I'm just going to have to build that reputation. So with that, there's the answer to your top intellectual property question. I don't know if that provided a full answer because there isn't an easy answer for it. Um, but if anybody else has any other intellectual property questions, feel free to go or you do as well. Uh, or, uh, Dr., or Dr. Kane, feel free to always reach out to reach out to me at uh, strategymeeting.com, grab some time to chat. And we're always here to help. And with okay. that, we'll ra- we'll go ahead and wrap up the podcast. Thank you again, uh, Dr. Kane, for coming on. It's been a pleasure, and uh, wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last.
0: Thank you so much.